welcome aboard. Whether you've got here by accident or on purpose, whether you're kidnapped and held hostage and waiting for someone to pay the ransom, you have reached Fishing Without Bait, a lifetime without definitive expectations, where we help people explode into their lives through full impact mindfulness. We're looking for people who want to create themselves rather than find themselves. The only requirement is the honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness to try. If you're welcome nowhere else, you're certainly welcome here. Let the adventure begin. My name is Jim Ellermeyer. I'm a behavioral health therapist. And today we're joined by a really anticipated guest, uh, Mr. David Pohl, an artist and illustrator of some renown. David, welcome aboard. Thanks, Jim. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so... If you had to give an accounting of yourself, if you were captured by aliens and you were the only representative <laughs> of the human race, uh, and you had to, first of all, tell how you represented the human race, what would you say? I'd say, first of all, I, I, I love my fellow humans, um, or try to, most of the time. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a creator. I'm someone who... Uh, Kind of enjoys processing life and uh, and then sharing sharing my experience with others through through my artwork, whether that be visual art or musical art or um, I'm a, I'm a musician as well as a visual artist. Um, well, and up on the to, screen right now, David, we're looking at uh, various expressions, uh, presentations that you've made and. Uh, if someone wanted to view your illustrations or find out more about you, how would they do that? My website is davidpohl.com, P-O-H-L. And uh, I also have an Instagram account called House of Pinting, P-I-N-G-T-I-N-G. And uh, that's where I share like a lot of my work, a lot of my life I share online. I've been posting online since 2005. Wow. Just about every day, almost. When I first started posting images online, it was almost like that was my uh, my daily devotion. I kind of used it as an altar, where I put my intention or I put something that was like really significant to me that day up up online. You know, it was really very very intentional back in that at that time. Uh, it's, I mean, I think it still is, but it, it was at that time it was very almost like a prayer or something. You know. Okay. Well, I, again, we're viewing uh, a lot of your work on the screen here, and it seems to be pretty eclectic. Uh, where, what would you call your style, David? Well, my illustration style right now is uh, I'm a collage artist primarily. Um, I think primarily my work is about collage. It's about finding something like a scrap or a fragment or a piece of something that already exists exists in the world and then kind of like using that as a starting point or an inspiration for for the piece. So um, when I when I first started doing illustration I was doing like three-dimensional found object painting um, and sculptural work and then the work was being photographed for my clients and I'd send the clients a final uh, photograph was the final piece um, and then in the late 90s early 2000s I started working digitally and um, I could see where that whole thing was heading, you know. So I started to work digitally, and I think I mean I'm a graphic artist. Like my work is very, um, it's very graphic. Um, it's about being read very easily, you know. I'm influenced by mid-century modernism, um, 
And I'm, I'm really influenced by Van Gogh a lot as a colorist, especially his color palettes are just, just always gorgeous to me. Okay. So for many people, I, oh, I love this in a movie. I think I saw it once where a person stopped and they said, I'm look, I'm trying to get to such and such a place. And, uh, could you give me the directions? And their answer was, oh, you can't get there from here. Uh, however, you got here from there. So we always like to hear about these type of stories to how people got here from there. So what was there like, David? Um, well, I, I think it started early for me. I mean, I, I wanted to be an artist when I was about eight or nine years old. Um, I was always influenced by art as a, even as a really young child, um, some of my earliest memories have to do with looking at visual art. Um, one of the first things I remember drawing was Snoopy. Ah. And uh, I was really influenced by Charles Schultz as a kid, just the way he drew and just the, the characters in his comic strips. Uh, I was kind of a Snoopy crazy kid. I had Snoopy everything in my bedroom. Um, I also loved Dr. Seuss books and um, was really influenced by the color and the craziness of those books. The, I think the rhythm, the, the musical rhyming of dr seuss you know um so i wanted to be an artist when i was eight or nine years old my grandfather was an artist um i have some of his paintings in my house um and i never met him he died in 1959 or mm. 58 i think but i i wasn't born until 63 so i never met him but my grandmother told me i remember very early in my life i was probably 11 or 12 my grandmother looking at my fingers at her kitchen table and telling me I had long fingers like my grandfather and I was going to be an artist like my grandfather. Ah. Um, so I had that. Um, I had, I mean, I think all kids have creative talent. Everybody I've taught art and around eight or nine years old, every kid is creative and every kid's kind of bursting with creative energy. And then it starts to get kind of, squashed out of them. Tell me more about that, David, because uh, one of our primary focuses here and one of my absolute projects that I get on my pedestal about is that particularly young ladies begin to lose their self-concept and self-esteem around the age of nine years old. So tell me more about that. That's of great interest to us. Well, I think what happens is, from my experience in teaching, is I don't know, it's that, that time in life when you start to become like self-conscious, you become aware of what others think of you, you know, up until that age, maybe you don't really think so much about what other people are thinking about you or of you. You want to be liked. You want to be friends with people, you know, you want to be popular maybe, I don't know. Um, but so it's around that time when, you know, you, you watch kids draw and they're like, when they're eight or something, they're just, they're just so like zoned into their work. And they're drawing without looking around. They're just like totally focused on their own work. And then around 10, 10, 11, I've noticed that the kids, they start looking around to see what the other kids are doing and comparing themselves. And they're like, oh, my work looks stupid. You know, my work looks dumb. And, and I don't know, something, it's like a filter, self-filtering process that happens, you know. So when you were teaching and some, you looked at some, buddy's work and says, hey, that's, uh, I like that. And they would offer a disparaging comment about themselves saying, oh, this isn't any good. All that, it's stupid. How would you answer that, David? 
I, I don't remember exactly. I mean, I think I, I always tried to encourage them um, and tell them, oh, that's not true, you know, or like, I like what you're doing. I think I would say that, you know, I like what you're doing. Um, or I would ask them why they don't like it, why, they, why they're saying that. Yes, yes. So quite often if someone comes to us and says to me and says, oh, I'm stupid, oh, I'm this, oh, I'm that, what I'll say to them, I'll say, convince me. Yeah. Convince me. Convince me that it's bad. Convince me that you're dumb. Convince me. So eight or nine years old. So what were you what interests were you developing back then around eight or nine, if you can remember? Well, I was really into records, uh, 45s and music. Um, and I was really into drawing and comic books Ah, and and television. <laughs> I watched a lot of TV. The Flintstones and uh, Saturday morning cartoons. Okay. Uh, Bugs Bunny Roadrunner. Oh, boy. I used to get up before anybody in my house on Saturday morning, like even before my father. Like it would be pitch black outside, and I would like, I couldn't wait to go down and watch cartoons. So that was a, that was a ritual of many people uh, yeah. a few years ago, the Saturday morning block of cartoons. Tell us about comic books. Um, well, I, I was into Mad Magazine. Um, ah, and uh, and I used to read Archie comic books, and I liked Superman. Um, I didn't really get into like the superhero comics very much. I think I liked Archie comics because it was like older kids, and maybe I was imagining what it was like to be a teenager. Yes, um, you know, through that lens of it was definitely, and I I was kind of aware it wasn't really like, I mean, I think it was current, but I was even aware then that it was like a fifties or something milk shops milkshake shops you know and hamburgers and fries and stuff like that it, that's where they hung out you know um well it was certainly but i was a different... really into mad magazine and i ah. think that's where i got my sense of kind of like cynicism a little bit and sarcasm and you know like that the world was a joke at, at time you know i mean i definitely went through a phase in college where i was just everything was a joke you know the characters that they had and the scenes and the drawings and the illustrations, Dave Berg, it was just fantastic. Yeah, it, it was. And I, I loved spy versus spy and oh, I yeah. loved their send ups of just movies and, you know, TV shows from popular culture, making fun of those things. Um, so I started reading mad magazine when I was about nine, nine years old, maybe 10 years old and going up to the local, walking up the street to the local, a drugstore to pick it, you know, get a comic book. That was that was that was great. That was it was thing, you know, kind of like the old National Lampoon that uh, magazine that used to be. Yeah, available, very very good. So that so you had more of a creative type of uh, maybe. Did you have a cynical view of the world, kind of a satirical type of? Because uh, that's kind of where uh, Mad Magazine went. Well, when I was little, I think. I didn't understand a lot of the sarcasm or I, I mean, I, I appreciated, it. I thought it was funny and I knew that it was kind of edgy, you know, or it was like a little bit, uh, it's like looking at the world through a cracked lens or a warped lens or something like that. Um, uh, but I think like later on in life, when I began to get a little bit more cynical about the world, you know, and just thought it was all bullshit. Um, cause I definitely <laughs> went through that. <laughs> I definitely went through that phase. Um, and I think that that had a, you know, that was part of the seed that was planted in my head as a kid. You know? Did you receive encouragement and support? Who did, who was your mentor? Who gave you the encouragement and support? 
Well, I mean, I have to say, I think my family was very supportive, but they were also, um, you know, especially when I was in college, I didn't get a lot of support in the sense of like everyone doubted that I could do it or like, what are you going to do, you know, to make a living, you know, how are you going to make a living? What are you going to do kind of thing? Um, but I put myself through school. Um, so I went to Kent State University to study graphic design and illustration. And, um, and then I dropped out after two years because I wanted to be a painter. And I took a year off. And, uh, and then I, when I went to the Cleveland, I, I enrolled in the Cleveland Institute of Art. And uh, I did very well there with scholarships and things. The, it was a five-year program. So wow. my, my third year, I got a half-tuition scholarship. My fourth year, I got a half tuition scholarship, and my fifth year, I got a full scholarship. Mm. And then I received a forty-five hundred dollar traveling scholarship when I graduated. So I went to Europe for six months after that. Wow, quite, quite generous. Um, but I guess you know because I was putting myself through school, I I just did what I wanted to do. I was paying for it, you know. Yes. And it was hard. I mean, I didn't get. I mean, I I I have to say, I mean, my parents were always supportive. Um, and they bought me art supplies, and uh, but they also were doubtful. And I, that's just you know, at the time, it, it, maybe it was more painful to me at that at that age. But I understand that you know, I mean, I've even I even sometimes feel today like wow, because I've taught in, in colleges and stuff like that, and sometimes I think wow, it's really hard to be an artist, and why do you want to do this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so when. When you told your, or you told people, what are you going to do? Well, I'm, I want to be an artist, or some people would say, I want to be an actress, I want to be an actor, I want to be a painter, I want to be a sculptor, I want to be this. And then they would say, well, what are you going to be when you grow up? <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do to put gas in your car? Yeah. Well, I mean, I have made a, a living as an artist. Yes. Now. This will be my, next year will be my 30th year. Wow, uh, and that doesn't mean it's sometimes hard to fill up the tank. That's for sure. But, how did um, you uh, How did you deal with the skeptics? How did you deal with the doubters? Probably well, some of them, maybe even been in your, your own relatives. Yeah, uh, th there were there were there were people definitely in my little family circle. I think that um, I mean, I don't know. I've always had a strong belief in myself, and I don't really know where that comes from. But I know. I mean, I definitely think that it, it came from the outside. It came from when I was in seventh grade, uh, my grandmother sent me to the Art Institute to take a class at the Art Institute of Pittsburgh in cartooning. Uh -huh. And I was like 13 or something, and I was there with adults. Like everyone was over 18. Some of, the, some of them seemed like they were, you know, really old. They were probably 32. Uh -huh. <laughs> but, uh, but I think I was like, I realized that my work could kind of compete with that level or I was as good as them. And mm. I got, I got some praise for that or something. I mean, praise goes a long way when you're young, you know, getting, getting someone to say that your work is good or you're talented or, you know, and so, I mean, I wanted, I won an art show in seventh grade. Mm. I had an art teacher um, in seventh grade who was really supportive of my cartooning and gave me a lot of encouragement. And so I think that was a big thing for me was just like outside of my family, I had a lot of support from people and, you know, like quote the real world or whatever, you know. So that boosted your self-concept, that boosted yeah, your self-esteem. For sure. Okay. So 
when we deal with people, we work on self-concept, which is facts and information you know about yourself, self-esteem, which is how you interpret that, and identity formation. So let's talk about uh, David Pohl and his identity formation. Yeah, I think I matured late. <laughs> I think I held on to my childhood for a long time. Um, I think I was very naive. Um, and then I think that when at that age, when in high school, when, you know, I mean, I was really kind of awkward. I was very shy. I was very shy in high school. Um, but I had, I had a couple really close, a couple really close friends. And I think I could relate to those friends. And they, I, I, I had a friend who I'm still very good friends with, who we were kind of like Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn or something. Yeah. You know, we had adventures together in high school. We, you know, we did crazy things really, you know, involving drinking and mm -hmm. drive doing stupid things, you know, but, um, but like, I guess, you know, that, that was part of it. I think, you know, um, I, I really think a lot of my identity was through my work that like when things were messed up or whatever, I, I always found a place to go to, to like shut the world, shut the world off and like return to my center or something, you know, like, Work. My work's always been like that to me, just drawing and working, and um, so that that's really been a huge part of my identity formation. So you had a foundation, you had a center on which you could stand and grow from. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. Well, quite often, what we give people the uh, thought, the concept, usually when I deal with people, I tell them about the first or second time we're together, I say. Here's the deal. We're spiritual beings. We're having the human experience, mm -hmm. and life is absurd. And I tell yeah. them, I tell them after they grasp those three things, kind of our work's done. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've heard that quote before. I love that quote, actually. Uh, we're, um, yeah, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. I love that quote. My father went through AA, um, and so I'm familiar with the 12-step program through my father, you know, and um, and my father and I had a later in life. My father and I had a very strong connection spiritually. Ah. Um, I was doing a lot of uh, meditation and yoga practice in the late '90s and early 2000s, and uh, my father was really interested in in talking about spirituality with me. So, you know, I used to I gave him Joseph Campbell books to read, and cool. Um, uh, I talked about Alan Watts. Alan Watts was a yeah. kind of big influence uh -huh. on, on me. Um, I used to listen to his Sunday night programs on WDUQ. Do you remember those yeah. shows? I remember those. I, I've listened to quite a few lectures by Ellen Watts. Yeah. Well, your father was a 12-stepper? Mm-hmm. Great. Well, that, that's what the 11-step says. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand God, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And that's, I believe that's kind of a mission statement for uh, the 12-step world. Cool. That's uh, that's really wonderful. So you graduate from college and then you come out and you face the world. Tell us about that. I have to say, I I definitely think that winning winning that traveling scholarship money changed my life. Um, because right after college, I wasn't thinking about getting a job and settling down in any way at all. I was just thinking about traveling and seeing the world. And so I went to Europe. Um, and I had spent a semester in New York City in 1986. 
And uh, I had a fr couple friends who were in this program and it was like each art school around the country, there was this group of art schools affiliated and they each sent one or two students to represent the school and they went to New York. So um, we lived at the YMCA on 34th Street and I got an internship at this Holly Solomon Gallery, which was this really swanky art gallery across from Trump Tower ah. on Fifth Avenue, like Bergdorf, Goodman and Sachs. And it was really, you know, it was the 80s. It was just gold and brass and wealth everywhere. And I was living in a room at the Y that you could touch with both hands when you, you laid in your bed. You could touch mm. both walls. Um, and it was pretty, you know, it was pretty divert, like pretty extreme kind of reality, like spending my days in, in in that really wealthy environment and then going downtown we had studio space to paint and work um so new york in 86 was very different than it is now it was it was pretty gritty still um and i don't know that 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 kicked me in the butt a lot you know i mean i was scared out of my mind half the time because it was you know you had to be kind of like on your toes it was a violent place there was a lot more crime and you know it was a little bit scarier than it than it, certainly than it is now, I think. Um, but like, I I, uh, I I loved it there. I loved the energy of the city. I loved the. I went to the art museums all the time. I was just it really like clicked something in me, like you know. And so when I graduated, I just wanted to to go out and see you know see stuff. And mostly, I spent my time in Europe in museums. I went to so many museums. Wow. So that was like a, almost like a another education after school. And so when I came home from that, uh, I was fortunate that a friend of mine uh, had a friend had a dad uh, who was an architect, and he had bought this old house in Shadyside, and he was going to fix it up. So he let us uh, live there for free while you know before he was going to do anything to it. And it was pretty run down, and you know we loved it. We we painted, and we could spill paint on the walls and everything. So I lived there, and I was telemarketing uh, for the Carnegie Museum. Oh, okay. And, um, and that was an interesting job. You know, I, I believed in the museum and the mission of the museum. So I could do that. I could I could sell people museum memberships because it was something I really believed in. Um, and then uh, I started to do some illustration work. I got published in Pittsburgh Magazine. Mm. Um, I really connected to the art director there who was a painter himself and was, you know, like had this kind of graphic design job. He just had had some kids and. You know, but he was a, he was an artist and a musician and a painter, and we just really related to each other. Um, and so I got started getting a little bit of work there, and um, and then my father, who told me this years later, um, I think my father didn't want me to leave Pittsburgh, and I think my father thought that I would leave Pittsburgh because oh. I never really imagined I would spend my life here. So. He bought, he, I have a friend who's a real estate agent. My best friend, who I told you about the Huxley yes. and Tom Sawyer relationship, uh, his name's Bob. His father was a real estate agent, and he, I was looking to rent a house because um, my friend who I was living with was getting married. And, um, and he had a crazy story. He got shot in the head hmm. and fell in love with uh, his um, uh, rehab nurse. Ah. And they got married, and they had a child. And, um, but... So anyway, my, my friend Bob's father was showing me around in this neighborhood where I live now, and he was showing me a house for rent, and he said, you know, there's a house up the street for sale, and you could you could buy it and rent the first floor because it's rentable. You could live upstairs. 
and they would pay your mortgage. And uh, I was like, I don't have any money to buy a house. You know, <laughs> I was working part time at Pittsburgh Magazine at that time. I was, uh, this was a couple of years later after the telemarketing and, and doing a little bit of illustration. And so my father, I think, I think wanted to, I think it was part of like, he wanted to just maybe, you know, guarantee that I'd stay here and also like help me out. So he loaned me the money to buy the house. And it was only, the house was nothing. It was only $21,000 for the house. And uh, he loaned me the money to put the down payment down. And, um, and I paid him back and got a, he co-signed for a mortgage. And I bought this house when I was 28. Ah. I felt very immature. I felt like I wasn't ready to own a house or anything, but I loved having all the space and I loved having a, a place to work and live. And so now it's 30 years later and, I, and I'm here, still here. And um, so, so that, but I think what going, getting back to your question though, like having this house and knowing that I didn't have to move because I had moved like once a year for 10 years or something like that. And just having that ground and being having that stability, I was ready to kind of just, you know, settle in a little bit. Because I did have a crazy 10 years of life, just lot, moving around a lot, and a lot of adventure, and a lot of stuff. Um, and, it, and, and it enabled me to just kind of like really work on my art. And but then right when I bought this house, the house I was living in was robbed and I lost all this stuff. Ah. And then. I moved in and I, I had lost I lost my job the same month I bought the house. So I so I moved into this house without a job. And I had been doing some freelancing and the freelancing money was very good. And I got a job that January that was like basically like three months worth of income that I would have made if I had my job at Pittsburgh magazine. Hmm. Which was just like a minimum wage, a little bit above minimum wage job. Sure. So so I think that that made me think, hmm, maybe I can do this. You know, maybe I can maybe I can do this for a living, you know. So I didn't have a plan to be an illustrator. It just kind of happened. And then I started to really pursue it like, OK, this is what I want to do. So this is what I'm going to focus on. Uh, it sounds like you've had a tremendously well-rounded experience and nobody just hatches and arrives. Nobody, nobody. I've uh, heard the term. uh 20-year overnight success um, when people arrive on the scene, when they make, yeah. write a book, maybe they have a song that's popular or a play or whatever, and they say, wow, how does it feel to be an overnight success? And I heard an interview once, and this person says, yeah, I'm a 20-year overnight success. Right. Yeah, it's always like that. It is. One of the first big jobs I got very early on in 1991 was for the Atlantic Monthly. Hmm. That was, you know, a major national publication. Yes. And I felt like I had arrived. I felt like I had arrived at that point. Um, and little did I know that, like, that doesn't mean anything, really. You just, you know, it's just a client you had. And then, you know, you still have to find, like, I, I still have to find clients all the time. I'm still working to find new clients all the time. And just, you know, it's easy, it's it's not easy to get there, but it's hard to stay there. You know what I mean? It's hard. Once you arrive, then you have to, like, stay there and try to hold your space and that's really hard you well know? you get to get complacent you you can you can't a person can't get complacent and sometimes they get an elevated sense of themselves i don't know whether that ever happened to you or not it's i don't know if it's 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 not so much complacency is it i think for me i realized at some point 
I wanted to do more than work. You know, I wanted to do more. I wanted to, like, I wasn't enjoying work after a while, like about five or six years in when I was doing, you know, hundred jobs a year and I was just working 13 hour days every day. Yeah. And, you know, working for magazines and newspapers, especially back in the nineties before, before email and the computers, you had to overnight the artwork to the client and you might get a call, you know, and have seven hours to, to read the story, come up with an idea, make the art, have it photographed and send it to FedEx, like in one seven hour thing, you know? Um, so it was kind of stressful and, uh, and it was a lot of work and, and I think I just wanted to do other things. And so I kind of, you know, I explore, I, I, I'm a person who explores a lot of different things. So I was in a band for a while. Yeah. Tell us about I, that. That's great. Yeah. I started, uh, playing in this band because I always, like, I played the drums as a kid. I took drum lessons and, um, there was definitely a time in my life when I wanted to be a musician in high school. And, you know, one thing I think was, I wished my, I could go back and, and, you know, my, my guidance counselors basically told me, well, you have to make a choice. You can't be an artist and a musician. Mm. And that's not true. But, you know, back in the day, I think they just basically wanted you to just choose one thing and, you know, but, I, I really thought maybe I wanted to be a musician too. And I kind of had to decide between art and music. And I think at the time I chose art because that was something I felt like I could do by myself and musicians, you have to be in a band or be in an orchestra or whatever, you know? Um, but anyway, so I just decided that, yeah, I wanted to play music again. And I answered a classified ad in the Pittsburgh city paper mm. um, and uh, auditioned. And I got into this little country band, this sort of alt, alt country band i was playing snare drum and then we were at another gig and i and i met these other musicians in this other band and they were playing this really experimental kind of funky music with a didgeridoo player uh -huh. uh, and uh a really great poet singer uh and those those guys are all really still doing their art uh they're making music they're doing art um so that was a great experience uh, the band was called Silva Mestizo. And uh, there's some videos on YouTube, and ah. I think some of the records are even on Spotify now. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I played in the band. We were really busy. We played um, we played like 90 shows one year, hmm. uh, which is a lot. That's like you know two a week, um, okay. around 2,000. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, how did that shape your art? Well, I think it it shaped my art in a way that it, it, it gave me a break from my art, actually. Ah, okay. Um, because that was like around... I had a crazy thing happen where I burned my hand really badly um, in a fire. I used to paint with wax. And I had a wax fire. Uh, that the I was melting it on the stove and it caught fire. And I accidentally, like, instead of just turning the fire off and letting it go get the, you know, the stove off. I, I picked it up and the lid, took the lid off and the oxygen hit it and it went. Oh. You know? And so I was holding this pot of fire in my hand. And I mean, this was about 10 seconds worth of time. But I, during this time, I thought, okay, if I drop this pot, I'm going to set my house on fire, you know, because it's wax and it's like petroleum wax. It's going to just splatter everywhere, set the house on fire. So I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to just take it outside the kitchen, down the hall, and throw it out the back door. 
which is what I did, but it was kind of like my hand was on fire for about 10 seconds. Yeah. The skin just literally just came off. I had a third degree burn. Oh. Um, my poor little dog got burned, spilled some wax on him. Um, and then I had a skin graft and the, the doctor told me that he didn't know if I would ever be able to use my hand again. And I'm right-handed and it was my right hand. And, um, so long story short is that the, the, the drumming actually was really good therapy for my hand. I think the movement, uh, I wore this like skin tight glove for a year and I did a lot of like stretching the, the skin, you know, like this, you okay. know, like I, I couldn't move it like more than that. And I did a lot of stretching of the skin. Um, but I think like the motion of playing the drums, like the way you hold a drumstick, I think it just brought a lot of blood circulation to the okay. hand. I think it helped it heal. So you're experienced in pain. Oh, that was crazy pain. I mean, I never experienced any kind of pain like that before. And I feel like if, you know, I was in the burn care unit for five days mm. and there were people in there who had, you know, 80% of their body was burned, you know, and the mine was just a small area. I could, I can't imagine that kind of pain. Mm. Okay. It was so, they left a staple in. That's how like my, my skin was my flesh. It was like a piece of raw meat. And they left a staple in, and I didn't even see it for a couple of weeks. That's how, like, you know, <laughs> it's just like, uh, um, yeah, it was that. That was a crazy story. I, I, uh, I was doing a lot of yoga and meditation at that time, and uh, I was doing Kundalini yoga, and I was doing very intense meditation practice. And I'm convinced that if I hadn't have been doing that at that time, I wouldn't have had the mental strength to. So, you know, put, deal with the pain for as long as I did, you know, mm. I was just kind of like, I can do this. I can do this. I know it's just, I just, you know, I can do it like just very focused. I was doing this Kundalini yoga practice. I don't know if you, do you know about Kundalini yoga? Yes. Yeah. So I had done um, a, a Kundalini yoga, had experience out in New Mexico. I went to the ashram in Northern New Mexico and they did this thing called white tantric yoga. That was a whole week of yoga, but three intense days of yoga where you would do like these practice. You'd have your hands up in the air and you'd have a partner and you'd look in their eyes and you would stare at them and, and chant for 60 minutes with your arms up in the air. And I remember the first day of that. And I just thought, there's no way. Like I remember what was going through my mind and thinking, there's no way I'm going to hold my arms up for 60 minutes. It's like, it's four minutes and I am in agony, you know? <laughs> and, and then somehow the, the, the meditation, this, the, the chanting, the whole practice of everyone around you doing it, it just like lifts you up and it sustained you. And I, I definitely had a kind of a, you know, at the time I, I didn't know what had happened to me, but I actually felt like I had taken psychedelic drugs, which I had done. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I was, you know, just from meditation and yoga practice, I felt like I had taken psychedelics. Okay. So you felt, you felt connected with something. Yeah. It was a very, very much like a, you know, a, a godlike experience or i mean i had a hallucination in the desert where i saw a body of water 
And I remember looking at the trees and they were vibrating, you know, like they were breathing, yeah. you know, like that sense of oneness and everything is connected. And it was very beautiful, but it was a little scary at the time because I didn't know when I was going to like come down from that. And, um, and I later, you know, years, years later, it's been, that was in 2000 or 98. That was, um, you know, I, I have a lot of mixed feelings about Yogi Bhajan, a whole, a lot of mixed feelings about the whole experience. It seemed a little cultish to me at the time, even, um, I was weary of that, but I was also, I'm, I'm fairly experimental. I like to try things out for myself, you know? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, the type of mindfulness that we practice isn't sitting on a pillow going um all day. I think the basic definition of mindfulness is paying attention on purpose, which which most people do not. We te I teach a lot of observe, describe, participate, and uh, what I do is I I use an analogy like a football game, and last night's football game was not a good analogy. Uh, however, when I say the observed part of it is when Roethlisberger views the field and looks at the defense. And then when he's the ball snapped, he continues to observe. Then he describes to himself where everybody's going, who's going to be open to cover to, whatever it is. And then he decides to participate, either throw the ball away or go throw it to a certain receiver or in last night's case, throw it to the other team. Yeah, I mean... I don't know if I should have told told that story about the Kundalini to you, but um, that to me that was a really extreme measure of you know, and I I think at the time it was uh, I know Yogi Bhajan started practicing in the late '60s when there were a lot of people doing psychedelic drugs, sure. you know, and like there's even a clip of his students in Woodstock in the film. Ah, okay. Um, and they talk about how, you know, they're getting high naturally and not taking drugs and things like that. But I think there was a lot of things that, that were, that make me kind of squeeze, squeam, you know, squeamish or squeal now about like just how weird it was. But <clears throat> at the time, I think it was definitely, I had started doing just simple Zen meditation and doing, and I do think that that has had a great influence in my life. Um, and, uh. And that came through the artwork as well. Like I was really interested in when I was at the Met a lot, seeing those, you know, ancient Chinese and Japanese ink paintings and sculptures. Like I wanted to know what was behind it, you know, like sure. what, why was the Buddha like, what was so peaceful about that? What's behind that? You know, that led me on that path of meditation. Well, it's stopping the chatter. And when I, I speak at yeah. a lot of rehabs and generally I tell people, that uh, if we pay attention on purpose, life will have some meaning for us. People, places, things will be placed in front of us that if we're there, present and aware, then they'll have some meaning for us. I often say that uh, there's so much chatter going on inside of our heads that creation could be happening off to the side of us and we wouldn't notice. Yeah, that's really what it's all about is stopping, stopping the noise in the head. And when you stop that noise... That's where I think all creativity comes from, the, the silence, the quiet, the space, you know. Yes. Um, and so, I mean, I, I got into nature. I mean, we didn't grow. I didn't grow up spending time in nature at all. And and my I had a dog who really was my 
my spiritual trainer too because he my dog love you know I, I would take walks in my dog with my dog and nature for hours and hours and watch him just interacting and i used to let him off his leash and just let him run and i mean he was trained very well he never ran away or anything and and uh he would flush out birds and he would you know it, i would just kind of it was kind of like a nature guide and and he really brought the silence and the beauty and the just the you know the awe of nature to my life you know well what we help people do david is figure out what's important as because most things are not, uh, and we get really to choose. Uh, so sometimes what I'll ask people, David, is uh, I'll say, if everything were taken away from you, your health, money, whatever that you have, who'd be standing with you at the end? Who would never leave you? And then I'll ask a person, who do you trust so much in your life that if they said fall, you'd fall without hesitation because you're certain that they would catch you? I said, those are those are the relationships you want to add to and reinforce. Most people in our lives, David, are acquaintances. Uh, a lot of people, I'll call them friends of commonality. And then after that commonality is over, like maybe a work experience, golf team, whatever, then there's no animosity or ill will. The currents in life just go in other directions. But the people, those type of people, what I call 3 a.m. friends, people that would jump out of their bed to come literally and or figuratively to help you at 3 a.m., that's important. And if you have a few of those in your life, you consider yourself extremely fortunate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely. So as you evolved in your life, it sounds like you've had a lot of really uh, experiences that have shaped you. And remember, not all experiences uh, are wonderful and pleasant. Uh, it's just sometimes in the 12-step world, people will say, well, I don't know what to do. And then we'll kind of gently challenge them and say, well, do you know what not to do? Uh, most, mm -hmm. pe most people, David, know what not to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't uh, do any kind of 12-step program, but I definitely, you know, have, um, there have been times in my life when I definitely, you know, had to deal with my addictions, you know, mm -hmm. um, to drinking and to smoking, um, you know. And uh, to, to, you know, I, I definitely uh, understand that whole that whole world and growing up in it you know it was you know it's pretty normal to me growing up um and uh but and i think even even my spiritual pursuits became an addiction you know to me for a while and i recognize that now you know um but at the time too i think you know, i thought well it's better to be addicted to something that's not hurting me it's something positive than to be addicted to something that's you know that could potentially hurt me well, you can have an addictive personality without drugs or alcohol or gambling yes, involved. Yeah. And 12-step recovery is about having a change in your thoughts and a change in your actions. It's about behavioral yeah. change. The first step's the only one that mentions addiction. Please check out our website at fishingwithoutbait.com, where you can listen to the show, comment on our discussions, and find out where you can subscribe to our podcast. If you're interested in flying the colors of Fishing Without Bait, click the shop icon on our website, we have clothing, mugs, cell phone cases, and so much more. Show the world that you fish without bait. This show is a member of the Sorgatron Media Podcast Network. Find out more at sorgatronmedia.com.